Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with editor-in-chief Jill Manoff. How are you, Jill? So good. How's it going? It's going good. I'm recording this from my new apartment in a completely empty office, so I apologize if it's a little echoey in here. Hopefully some furniture in the future will absorb the sound. Um, (laughs) But we've got a great episode today. We're talking about a couple things. We're going to talk about Allbirds making a tiny bit of a comeback after a rough couple quarters and why that brand seems to be struggling a lot. Um, We'll talk a little bit about Victoria's Secret bringing back some of their iconic models like Adriana Lima and Giselle. And then finally, we're going to talk about the possibility of British celebrity stylists unionizing and what that means for celebrity styling in general. Um, We do have to mention the news just broke the morning that we're recording this, so we will not uh, be going too deep into it. But Tapestry bought Capri Holdings this morning, which is crazy. Um, Jill, you're writing about it this week, so we'll save the deep dive for your story, but that is wild. It's wild. I keep emailing people for comments saying, big news day. Like, I feel <laughs> I feel like we're saying this often these days. There's a lot of big news happening, but this is mage. Yeah, it's a big acquisition. I, I feel like especially acquisitions, there's so many big mergers happening all the time, uh, especially in the luxury space. So, yeah, we're, we won't go too deep into it right now, but look out for Jill's luxury briefing on the topic. She will be doing a deep dive. Um, <laughs> would be good. Yes. But let's start with Allbirds. So they reported their earnings there uh, earlier this week. And I really, I think that this brand has kind of been in a rough spot recently. Um, the last year or two, they they launched a bunch of new product categories. They did activewear and apparel, and then they did like performance running sneakers, whereas they're, they were mostly known for casual sneakers before. And it just seems like all of that stuff really has not uh, worked out for them too well. Uh, anyway, their earnings this quarter were down 10%, uh, their, their revenue, which is not great, but it is better than the 18% they were expecting. So I think that's, to me, that's showing that um, things are evening out a little bit for them. They have discontinued some of those categories. They've liquidated a lot of things. They pulled out of leggings entirely. They're not going to sell any more leggings. Um, yeah, it just seems like they they got into really competitive spaces and just a little bit got walloped. You know, I don't think they really uh, were able to compete with Lululemon and Nike and Adidas and all those big brands. That's, that's such an intimidating space, activewear and performance stuff. There's huge brands that, you know, are multi-billion dollar brands that have been doing it for years. That's got to be a really tough uh, category to just try to break into. Um, What were your thoughts, Joe? Agree. Yeah, it was interesting that they're still down 10%, but it's not as bad as we thought. (laughs) So um, so stocks rose 9% by the end of the day um, when this was announced on Tuesday. But yeah, I think of Allbirds almost um, in the same pool of brands as like outdoor voices. And they were, they came out, I, I believe around the same time, but it was just kind of like a joke, like the direct to consumer, you'd see people on the street and they're all direct to consumer out. <laughs> like they had all yeah. the brands of the moment. Athleisure was thriving. Warby um, Parker glasses, Allbirds yeah. shoes. They're using a Quip toothbrush on the subway. <laughs> You know it. So it's like, I'm sure they've had their long-term fans, um, but newer brands that are doing something maybe slightly more interesting or doing it better have come onto the scene since then. So I'm sure they're losing um, market share. It's it's kind of, um, it's challenging. It brings up a lot of questions about 
staying in your lane and to what extent a brand can um, expand to new categories because we see brands doing that all the time and they executives are telling us about doing it slowly and thoughtful and um, hearing from their customer about what they want. You got to know where these other um, launches came from, performance wear, active wear, uh, apparel. Um, Like if that was a demand from the customer, if they just saw the opportunity because that was thriving. Um, So I I do, they've got a good community. I don't, well, who's to say? Um, But yeah, I mean, there is something to say for their comfort shoes and they are leading into that with this, uh, I think they launched or they expanded this super light collection um, during the quarter that seems to be doing good or it had a successful launch. Um, And knowing somebody in my family who is always in the market for more comfortable sneakers, like they just have bad mm-hmm. feet, bad knees. Um, there's only there's not much that's affordable. Um, I'm going to be talking with the founder of Fit Flop um, that also makes mm-hmm. sneakers, but it's like she's got a science behind how these shoes are made. They're very um, teamed with experts, but she saw this opportunity in the market. Um, but you would think there would be more, and I think that they're smart to lean in there. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I was going to say I own two pieces of the Allbirds apparel, like activewear category. I've got a shirt and shorts. I may have mentioned this to you before. The shirt is really, really nice and I wear it to the gym and stuff. It's great. The shorts are horrible. They're like just uncomfortable and like not, I don't know, I, I, everything about it, like I, I hate them. They're my least favorite shorts. Um, <laughs> so it, it feels like they're, it's a little spotty, some of their efforts there. It's like some parts of it worked really well and other parts didn't. Um, but you're right that like there's not a ton. It, it, they do have a, a sort of niche. They're they're these comfortable casual sneakers. I feel like they they're like a more stylish alternative to like Skechers or something. Like it's not quite as cool as like Nike or something, but it's it's cool enough and it's better if you really need something kind of orthopedic or super comfortable. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like the you you alluded to they you know, in the early days of the DTC revolution or whatever, Allbirds was one of those OG brands, I think, along with Warby Parker, um, who also had earnings this week. And I feel like part of the appeal there was just the novelty of it. They had really good branding. They were everywhere. And, you know, it was novel to just buy, you know, the direct-to-consumer model. And I feel like now there's so, so much of that that it's lost some of the novelty. Um, Footwear and sneakers have become such a big deal in fashion that I think there's a million options. And, you know, that got more competitive at the same time as they were going into more competitive categories. Um, I always ask brands when they've got new categories about, like, how did you know? How did you feel confident to start a new category? And definitely one big thing is that they often say, they ask the customer, they they get feedback, they, they're hearing that customers really want us to do sunglasses or whatever. Um, but even then, I think you can't always know exactly how the customer is gonna react. I mean, there's a big gap between what people say they'll do and say they'll buy and then what they actually buy once it's available. So uh, it does seem like a pretty big miscalculation on Albert's part. One other thing is they said that they are cutting back on their advertising revenue. I think they cut back their marketing budget by like 21%, which is a huge cut. Um, Same time as a lot of other brands are doing that too. But for DTC brands, they kind of lived on their marketing. 
Um, that was a big part of how those brands grew. And now Allbirds is kind of cutting back on that. And then also I think they have halted the opening of new stores and they're doing more stuff with third party uh, companies and retailers. So it, it seems like they're really kind of trying to um, diversify the the distribution, but focus the product, you know, like go back to basics on the product and also try to get their stuff out in more kind of stable, reliable places like third party rather than right. just, mm -hmm. you know, spending a ton of money on marketing and hoping for the best. You're so right. And it's good to see like they're not, they know better <laughs> publicly traded company than to just, you know, sit there. They're, it's clear that they're actively making changes. Yeah. They've got this transformation plan. So like you said, right, tracking the inventory and distribution uh, and also like well, promotions and all of that, um, but marketing in general. Um, I guess yeah. they're leaning into wholesale retail partners as opposed to spending so much on advertising and owned stores seems yeah. to be the balance. And I'll, as a final thing, I will point listeners to our, our friends at Modern Retail, our sister publication. Um, they had a great story this week about Allbirds and Warby Parker's like store strategy, how they both were opening a ton of new stores uh, over the last year, I think. And then now they both kind of slowed down on that. So um, yeah, Modern Retail has a good analysis of that, the retail piece a, of it. Yeah. And you had a story this week. Uh, it was actually about kind of related about um, alternative leather. But um, the fact that mm. It's interesting here because Allbirds has leaned heavily into sustainability and sustainability yeah. messaging. And um, like, does that not equate to sales? Maybe not at this point in time when people are really focused on, um, I guess, value, value, what they're getting for their money. Um, yeah. So hmm, we'll see. We'll see. Um, let's move on and talk about Victoria's Secret. So I feel like we've talked about this brand a lot um, on this podcast over the last year. Uh, they had a new campaign announced this week that's called the Icon Campaign. And the reason I thought it was interesting is because they're bringing back a bunch of the iconic kind of Victoria's Secret angel models like Adriana Lima, Naomi Campbell, Giselle are all kind of coming back alongside a bunch of their new models. Um, and the reason I thought this was interesting is because I feel like everything we've heard from Victoria's Secret over the last year or two is about distancing themselves from the past. And they're, you know, we're a new company and the, the, that documentary came out and they were like, that's, uh, you know, that's all behind us. We're not like that anymore. And then this campaign is so obviously kind of trying to intentionally bring back memories of the old Victoria's Secret in a way that I, I'm just like trying to figure out what the thinking is here. Like, uh, I don't know. I've got my theory, but let's hear yours first, Joe. What do you think of this this move? I thought this was such a good point because a lot of the press that's out there about this icons collection is just like Victoria's Secret. The models are back, <laughs> and you're yeah. like, wait, they're just doing what they've always done. Um, the models we've been pretending that we never had are now back, <laughs> and there's no messaging from the brand about what they mean because um, the models are and the brand executives are quoted as saying like, this is so empowering for women and this is such a, an impactful campaign, but like in what way, like there are models who are not a size zero Paloma. She's amazing. There are, I mean, there are also, you can talk, you could, they could speak to the fact that these models aren't 25 anymore. Like they are 
older women at this point. Um, but yeah, it's very unclear. And also one of the focuses is this um, push-up bra, which they're calling it the push-up demi Demi bra. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but they're saying this is to enhance the wearer's natural shape. This isn't the old push-up bra where it was like push up, <laughs> like major, but like a push-up but, bra is a push-up bra. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. That's this what is I was like say. so like, specific. It, it's like a slightly different framing, but it's ultimately the same product or a very similar product. So yeah, it's I, I feel like you can read this as one of two ways. You could either say that they're finally kind of comfortable enough enough in their new image to kind of mingle in some ideas from the old Victoria's Secret. And that's like, oh, maybe that's a good thing. Or you, I think you could read it as like, they're like, uh-oh, the new image isn't working. Let's go back to the old. Like, uh, actually we are the like ultra sexy, unrealistic beauty standards brand. Um, but I, I mean, you're, I think you make a good point that like it's mixed. They, they've got these, the old models are coming back, but they're not replacing the newer models. And there, there is still more diversity in the, the current sort of slate than there was before. So it's not like it's going away. I mean, it's definitely diluting that by bringing back some of the, the classic models. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I was looking back at their sales and stuff and their performance just to kind of get a sense. And it's not like they've been doing drastically well or drastically bad recently. They kind of plateaued a little. They're not, their sales aren't tanking, but they're also not exploding. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about how they're going to, you know, frame this in the future. Is this still part of the, the new, friendlier, more progressive Victoria's Secret, or is this a little bit more going back? Yeah. And I hesitate to say they're just copying Skims because Skims copied Victoria's Secret, but literally Skims did an icons. This is also called an icons campaign. Skims did an icons campaign in 2022, leveraging Victoria's Secret OG models like Heidi Klum and and Candice, who's in both of these campaigns. So I don't know. Obviously, yeah, they're, they're looking to remain competitive with the Skims of the world and the Aerie and the Rihanna brand savage savage fenty um they're still number one like you said their sales aren't what they were but they're the top lingerie intimates brand um which is you know nothing to sneeze at but also like they're going to be so under the microscope they've got this special coming out for prime on prime video just like again rihanna (laughs) Mm -hmm. rihanna did with her line um but that's happening in late september um, and it's supposed to reimagine the fashion show um, that they used to do. But apparently this was a preview, this icons campaign of that. So you can expect some of these models will be there. Like, what is this going to be? I'm going to watch. Yeah. Well, one, once that happens, I think we should reconvene and talk about how they like if it felt like just back to basic Victoria's Secret or if it is kind of a, a new sort of intermingling of of ideas yeah, I definitely think that it's just funny that the way that they've talked about their brand the last year has been so like we are nothing to do with that old Victoria's Secret. And now it's just here it is. Um, cool. Let's move on to our final topic. This one is really interesting to me. So a group of British celebrity stylists are unionizing under the British Broadcasting Union, BECTU, which is the Broadcasting, Entertainment, Communications and Theater Union. Um, which everybody abbreviates to Bechtu, which I find very fun to say. Um, but it's so it's really interesting. I was reading there's a great variety article that kind of digs into some of the reasoning behind it. They talked to one of the stylists, Matthew Miller, who's kind of leading the charge of forming this union. And 
the way he described uh, this job sounds so chaotic. There's no contracts. There's no regular kind of pay or benefits. Um, he said that, and, and this is specifically talking about stylists working with streamers and movie studios and stuff for promotional events. So not private stylists hired by like an individual celebrity. Um, but he was saying Netflix will pay around like $500 to style one actor or, or one celebrity for one like promotional event, $500, which is not that much already, but that includes the expenses. So if you have to buy the clothes, that comes out of that $500. Um, and so this guy, Matthew Miller was saying, if you stretch that out, the average stylist does like maybe 60 gigs a year. It comes out to like $8 an hour. It's <laughs> miserable. It's, so, it's so low. And, um, you know, yeah. it, it's it it's like a lot of jobs that that don't have union protection. It's just so chaotic, and the the streamers and the studios can just completely dictate the terms, and then you're just like lucky if you even get a gig. So it really feels necessary. Um, and yeah, let's let me pause there. What what are your thoughts on this? And then I'll I'll share some of my thoughts too. I have big thoughts on this. I act like I'm like one of them, which I'm not. I was a stylist in St. Louis back in the day. But I yes, literally, the, the, the attitude around stylists, models, kind of ev interns, fashion, anybody that gets to like come on set and work, the attitude is always kind of like, just be happy to be there. <laughs> like yeah. we, if it's almost, who says this? Like, I think it's on Devil Wears Prada. There are a million other girls who would kill to be here because- and work for Bubkiss just because they're just like, I don't know. It's it's fashion. It's yeah. Amazing. It's a it's a dream job for a lot of people, and dream jobs often get abused because they're dream jobs. Yes, and a lot of them, like you see this on the Instagrams of big stylists, like their Instagram is their almost like their book, their portfolio, and so they want to have the, all their clips of celebrities wearing their clothes. Um, that's a thing. So it's there's a fine balance. Like you need to build your portfolio. I used to do, I used to get commercial jobs, but also I worked with a modeling agency who did, um, their models did test shoots to become, you know, models and get signed with agents. And I would basically where I would work for free, um, style them. I'd get the clips of these budding models, which were like, the pictures were amazing. Um, and it was kind of worth it. And you also hear on the model front, which there's this whole model unionizing conversation happening right now as well. Is that mm -hmm. happening? It's coming. Um, but that they would walk the, they walk the run. I don't know if this still happens. It did again, back when I was doing all this, but they would walk the runway for free. Um, that it gets them a, awareness about who they are. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes they get paid in clothes. Um, but like that's, it's demanding. They're running all over New York. They're there all day getting their hair and makeup done for some shows. Um, it's a full day project. So anyway, it's not cheap to be there. So anyway, yeah. I, a lot of change is happening, but go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're totally right that a lot of those jobs in fashion feel very glamorous and they seem like they're, you know, being a stylist on set and working with a celebrity and doing It's like, you'd think that that would be this glamorous high profile job, but it's just, it's just a job like any other job. And because it's one that a lot of people are very passionate about and would like to do, I think that the studios will often just get away with paying very little because like you said, there's a million other people that want to do it too, which sucks because I think what that does, and, and this is, goes for any sort of, uh, passion driven, but very low paying job is that 
it basically it means that the only people who can get those jobs are people who are already rich or already supported yes. or already have other kind of and then you just get like a very narrow band of people who can actually do this job like I have talked to people, not just in fashion, but lots of different industries that work like this. I've heard that publish the publishing industry is like that because it could be years of low pay before you start to make a good salary, which means if you're a normal person, you can't afford to do that. Um, goes for, for so many other things too. Um, I also think it's interesting to talk about this, this new British union in the context of the current uh, Writers Guild and Actors Guild strikes happening in the US. Um, Guilds and, and and unions are national, so um, the British stylists have nothing really to do with American stylists. Um, the Variety article talks a little bit about how in, in the U.S. stylists kind of fall in the into the gap between the Costume Designers Guild, which is one union, and then IATSE, which is the film like crew and uh, production, you know, uh, employees union. And so some stylists, celebrity stylists, could fit into one of those two unions, but a lot of times they're in neither just because it's sort of like a, a gray area. Um, but so even though the unions are separated nationally, the the studios that they're negotiating with are international. So like the Brit Beck do is now going to be negotiating with Netflix at the same time as the Writers Guild in, and SAG after in the US are negotiating with Netflix. And so those studios, I think, uh, are so... I, I know a lot about this because my fiance covers the TV industry and she's been writing a lot <laughs> about the strike. And I've heard so much about it just from like listening to her interviews. But it really seems like the studios have just gotten away with like squeezing people and paying very little and just, you know, every trick in the book to like get more work out of people for for less dollars. Um, yes. So I really think it's like would not be surprising to me if the this, the dual strikes happening in the U.S. film industry at the same time as this British union is revving up uh, across the pond is going to just like drive more kind of labor collective action on both sides. So um, hopefully there will be more stylists unionizing in the U.S. because it really it's a big part of both movie and, and TV promotion, but also fashion and also the celebrities profiles like the Variety article mentions Margot Robbie's um, outfits for Barbie on the whole press tour that they've been doing for that movie. She's worn so many incredible outfits that have gotten a ton of attention and press and people have talked about how, you know, how stylish she looks. That's a stylist did that. I, I don't know who the stylist was, but like that doesn't just happen. There's a person doing that job. Uh, right on. And that, well, that person, they, got the clothes no doubt for free because it's Margot Robbie and it's this big movie. But like, yes, like you said, you see the impact that these red carpet moments can have on building buzz and excitement around a movie. And so it would serve these these studios well to to pay up and like make these ensure that their stars on the red carpet who are commenting on your behalf are look like celebrities and they build this almost like a fantasy around them. You don't want them wearing everyday clothes. Yeah. Um, yeah. That won't sell tickets. So I'm with you. I thought it was so funny. Did you see somebody refer to it? It's hot guild summer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. Everybody's unionizing. Um, but it's but. true. And and I do think that the the studios to me, uh, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm sympathetic to to the unions, um, but it does feel like even just from a pure business perspective, it feels like the studios are shooting themselves in the foot a little bit by just antagonizing. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure they've 
I had one meeting with the Writers Guild in the hundred days that they've been striking. They're just completely stonewalling the process. And it's like, we, we talked about this the other day, Joe, but you can only squeeze so much before you've got like nothing left to squeeze. So if you pay all the stylists so little, eventually you've got no stylists. And then and like, then what? Like, it, it seems counterintuitive and, and um, self-defeating in the long run. You're just like yeah. making your own, you're, you're like eroding the foundation of your own like business by, by just like wiping out all the people who make it happen. I don't know. It's, it, yeah. I really don't understand the thought process. And it, it has a ripple effect across industries. Like something's got to give. There's the whole conversation about uh, celebrities can't be on magazine covers promoting their movies right now. And September mm-hmm. issues are coming out. So that's rolled over to models. But when models unionize <laughs> and they're not going to yeah. do it because X, Y, Z, like then what? Um, so yeah, yeah. It, get, it gets weird. <laughs> and maybe you'll, you'll make you know, 1% more profit by, you know, continuing to squeeze whatever, whether it's the writers or the actors or the stylists, but it's like in the long run, you're just, I don't know. I think that's not smart. Before we wrap up, Jill, any fun stories from your time as a stylist? I, I've, but when we started talking about this, I literally completely forgot that you had a whole phase of your career as a stylist. What, what was it like? Literally, I almost mentioned this, like I was anxious 24 seven because you know, some brands, boutiques knew me and they'd be like, what do you want? Take it, whatever you want. And this would happen. But I'd like drive all over St. Louis, every boutique, every, but then Saks, Neiman, some of them had like a stylist fee, whatever. Mm. My, I, my whole life was racking up this credit card, buying and (laughs) returning and taping the bottom of shoes so they wouldn't get damaged. And I had a a retagger gun so I could retag the things. I was so sneaky. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it made me a nervous wreck, like thousands of dollars at a time. Um, so yeah, I, I feel for these stylists. It's high That's, stakes. Yes. I'd be like, oh my God, where are you going in those shoes? Like if they start walking off yeah, <laughs> because yeah. maybe they weren't Because that needs properly. to get returned. Yeah, <laughs> yes. exactly. It oh, wasn't wow. cool. These poor, yeah, I was screwing over the retailers. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's okay. I mean, you were also getting screwed over. So it's like somebody's getting screwed over every and time. they're promoting their clothes. Cute people wearing them. Hey. I know. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's wrap it up there. This was um, such a good conversation, as always, Jill. Um, for those of you listening, don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this because that helps us out a ton. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because you'll hear interviews with industry insiders every Wednesday and we can review episodes every Friday. Um, Jill, who's our next interview subject? Up next, we've got Neil Clifford. He's the CEO of the British accessories brand, Kurt Geiger. He's been with the company for 20 years and just in, in growth mode, expanding big in the U.S. Had some great things to say. Check it out. Great. Well, that will be our, our next Wednesday episode. And until then, thank you for listening. Thank you.